Unfortunately, this atmosphere of hatred is contributing uh, to the choices people are making to turn to violence. There's no question about it. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on KSO. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, in Round Mountain, California on KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today on what is, of course, a troubling day. Another troubling day. In these United States. Yep. So uh, let's start. Let's start at least with one flash of good breaking news right here now at the the top of the show. Uh, A federal judge today has blocked election officials in Georgia from throwing out absentee ballots because of simple signature mismatches as determined by non-handwriting experts. State law allows election officials with no expertise in handwriting or training to toss ballots simply if they believe that signatures do not match. But now, thanks to a whole bunch of lawsuits brought against Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, who also happens to be overseeing his own election for governor against Democrat Stacey Abrams, that won't be happening anymore. People will be allowed some time uh, to cure their ballots if there is a, a perceived mismatch in the signatures. That is, of course, important given that some 70 percent of the rejected ballots had been from African-Americans in a state that is only about 30 percent African-American. But uh, folks who may elect Abrams to be the nation's first African-American female governor. So that's it for the good news. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, sorry. Uh, we may have more on that in a bit if time allows. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time, by the way, in Georgia, like clockwork, with early voting now underway on the state's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. This from a Facebook commenter sent to me from some of the folks on the ground in Georgia yesterday. Uh, the commenter wrote voting today in Houston County. That's in Georgia, where the wait was two hours long. 
The guy beside my mom said his ballot kept switching from Abrams to Kemp. That, of course, would be on those touchscreen voting systems we've been telling you about for so many years now. Poll workers uh, said that he was not the first one to have this problem. The uh, Facebook commenter says, triple check before you submit. That is good advice, all of the, although that uh, won't stop your vote from being flipped by those unverifiable machines and never discovered as having been flipped. But yes, please do check if you're forced to use one of those horrible, unverifiable computer voting systems. Please check and check and check again before you hit the cast vote button. Of course, it's not only uh, Georgia that's rejecting ballots and voter registrations. Uh, Their neighbors to the north in Tennessee also seem to be in the business of disenfranchising a similarly disproportionate number of African-American voters, or at least they're trying to. And they also use 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems across much of the state, which just happens to feature a very tight race. Uh, for the U.S. Senate this year, or I should say in less than two weeks' time, between popular Democratic former Governor Phil Bredesen and Republican Marsha Blackburn to fill the seat being uh, being vacated this year by the retiring Republican Bob Corker. We will discuss the ongoing fight to ensure tens of thousands of Tennesseans, particularly in Memphis, will be able to vote this year. We'll speak with Shelby County Democratic Party Chair Corey Strong shortly. But first, uh, speaking of that highly competitive race for governor in Georgia, Donald Trump, who is still the president of the United States, tweeted out his support for Brian Kemp for Georgia's governor early uh, earlier this morning, asserting that it is, quote, so important with many O's and that. So, you know, he means it so important for voters to choose Kemp as their uh, over a Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams because, quote, she would destroy the state. Destroy the state. Not that he disagrees with Abrams' policies for Georgia, but that she will destroy it. Also, as we discussed on yesterday's program, Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott charged on Sunday during a campaign rally with Republican Senator Ted Cruz, who was locked in a close contest with Democrat Beto O'Rourke for U.S. Senate. Uh, Abbott charged that O'Rourke didn't just have the wrong policies for Texas or that he disagreed with them, that he sees things another way, that he believes Ted Cruz will better represent the state. No, he said that uh, Beto O'Rourke was, quote, hostile, hostile to the state. He must hate the state of Texas and all the Texans in it because he is hostile to the things that they believe in. Abrams would destroy Georgia, says the president, and O'Rourke is openly hostile to everything that Texans believe in. If you listen uh, to the president of the United States and the governor of one of the largest states in the union. That, of course, is just two recent examples from the last couple of days. I I could, of course, cite many other such examples. And, of course, Donald Trump repeatedly uh, citing the American media as the enemy of the people, the greatest danger posed to Americans. And then, of course, there's there's the chance of 
lock her up at his political rallies for his political opponents like Hillary Clinton. And even more recently, lock her up was a chant heard uh, at one of uh, one of his rallies uh, after Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein decided to vote against Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. Lock her up. Add to all of that the years-long campaign by right-wing propaganda outlets like Fox News that Democratic Party supporters like George Soros, a Jewish man who escaped the Nazis, is actually himself an evil Nazi bent on destroying America and everything that we hold dear. And so on the day after a, yes, working bomb was found to have been delivered to George Soros's house on Monday, what happened today uh, really shouldn't be much of a surprise to anybody. So here's what we know late today, according to The New York Times, after a number of rumors and inaccuracies made their way through uh, social media and up into the uh, actual corporate media itself. Here's what we know. Pipe bombs were sent to a number of prominent Democrats, including former President Barack Obama, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton as well, sparking an intense investigation on Wednesday into whether a bomber is going after people who have often been subject of right-wing ire. And I'm glad the New York Times said right-wing ire. That's their word, not mine. They didn't say conservative ire. They said right-wing ire because, of course, it is uh, a Republican Party who is no longer conservative. They are now radical extremist right-wingers. CNN received a similar bomb, as did uh, to the one sent to Obama and Clinton. The one uh, sent to CNN was addressed to Obama's CIA director, John Brennan. That touched off a mass evacuation of the Time Warner Center in Midtown Manhattan today, where the network is located. A law enforcement official said the devices were similar to the one found on Monday at the home of George Soros the uh, billionaire philanthropist and donor to liberal causes. None of the devices harmed anyone, thankfully. Law enforcement officials said that they were investigating whether all of the devices were sent by the same person or persons, which they, in fact, do seem to have been. Senior law enforcement official in New York describing the bomb sent to CNN compared it to the one sent to Hillary Clinton and the one sent to Soros, said, uh, quote, same package, same device. Clinton, Obama, Soros, and CNN have all figured prominently in Republican political attacks. That is where the New York Times described them as conservative political attacks. Many of those attacks, they note, have been led by the President of the United States, Donald Trump, who has often referred to major news organizations as, quote, the enemy of the people and has had a particular animus for CNN. The device sent to CNN was in a manila envelope it addressed to uh, the former CIA director Brennan, a critic of Donald Trump's. The president, in response to uh, Brennan's critique, revoked Brennan's security clearance in what was seen as an act of retribution against him. The envelope's return address, uh, the one sent to CNN, bore the name of Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the Florida congresswoman and the former Democratic National Committee chairwoman. 
The device sent to Soros was in a similar envelope, also printed with a return address, a label that had uh, Wasserman Schultz's name on it. A fifth device, apparently intended for the man who served as Obama's attorney general, that would be Eric Holder, was misaddressed. And since Wasserman Schultz's name was on the return address, that package was ultimately delivered back to her in uh, at her district office in Florida, according to law enforcement. And then another package addressed to another Democrat. That would be Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California, who has been targeted for months by Donald Trump and by his followers in the right wing media and on the campaign trail by other Republican politicians. She, too, has been demonized as hoping to destroy America. That package was intercepted at a congressional mail facility. Uh, in, uh, in Manhattan, after the evacuations at CNN, Mayor Bill de Blasio called the attempted bombings an effort to terrorize and vowed that the city's residents won't allow terrorism to change us. Look, I'm just going to say something broad, because at a time where there's a lot of hatred and division, it does not make sense to exacerbate it. Let's just say this to all public officials of all partisan affiliations. Don't encourage violence. Don't encourage hatred. Don't encourage attacks on media. Uh, you could disagree, but you have to show respect for people and air your disagreements peacefully. So unfortunately, this atmosphere of hatred is contributing uh, to the choices people are making to turn to violence. There's no question about it. And the way to stop that is to turn back the other way, to bring down the temperature, to end any messages about the use of violence against people we disagree with. And that has to start at the top. Yeah, that would be the top. The President of the United States. Earlier in the day, after the evacuation of CNN and uh, the other bombs began to come to light, the vice president, Vice President Pence, not Donald Trump, tweeted, quote, We condemn the attempted attacks against former President Obama, the Clintons, CNN and others. These cowardly actions are despicable and have no place in this country. Grateful for swift response of Secret Service, FBI and local law enforcement. Those responsible will be brought to justice. That was from the vice president uh, earlier on Wednesday. Donald Trump, who uh, usually has plenty to say on just about everything, especially on terrorism, he just retweeted Pence's tweet about an hour or so later, and he added, quote, I agree wholeheartedly. Gee, don't, don't hurt yourself putting out any kind of statement there. Later on uh, Wednesday afternoon, uh, Trump, who was uh, uncharacteristically quiet on Twitter for the rest of the day for some reason, he finally addressed the attempted bombings, telling reporters. And I just want to tell you that in these times, we have to unify. We have to come together and send one very clear, strong, unmistakable message that acts or threats of political violence of any kind, have no place in the United States of America. Well, that's very nice of you to say, Mr. President, after you've been uh, talking about uh, punching people in the face, after you've been lauding uh, a, a Republican congressman, Greg Gianforte, just days ago for beating the hell out of a, uh, a, a journalist from The Guardian. 
uh, <laughs> after you have been anything but unifying. He also said, uh, this is egregious conduct. It's abhorrent. That's a very bipartisan statement, he said. But this is not a bipartisan issue. And Trump knows that. Democrats, you know, may be critical of Trump and Republicans, but they don't, you know, generally characterize him as the enemy of the people. Hell, most of those Democrats won't even call for his impeachment, for Christ's sake, despite the fact that he's the most impeachment-worthy president this country has ever seen. The news of the devices, uh, the, the explosive devices, set off a wave of false reports throughout the day. Some media outlets reported that a similar device had been uh, sent to Governor, uh, New York Governor Cuomo and addressed to President Trump himself at the White House. The Secret Service eventually debunked that account, which made its way through the media. No, Donald Trump was not targeted. These were all Democrats who were targeted today. I could, of course, um, you know, go on with many other examples of uh, of the president stoking this atmosphere, stoking what is now happening. Citing uh, the, the, the former CIA director, John Brennan and Maxine Waters, it is not a coincidence that they were targeted as well. Of course, the right wing media immediately began dismissing all of this as a false flag attack. And uh, as noted, claimed that Trump had been sent one of these as well, but he hadn't. He has not. Now, sure, this could have been a false flag attack. That seems unlikely. But it could have been. I mean, these were actually live bombs. These were not threats. These were, you know, not threat letters. These were actually bombs that worked against people like George Soros. Uh, so for me, uh, the only surprise here, frankly, is that this has taken this long for something like this to happen. Thankfully, no, nobody was hurt here. But, you know, if you characterize your political opponents as trying to destroy the country, what did you think was going to happen, Mr. President and Governor Abbott and all of the other Republicans who don't just uh, disagree with their opponents, but who demonize their opponents? Uh, you know, and, and listen, if my country and everything that I believe in, if I'm told that it is being destroyed... Well, the patriotic thing to do is to save it and fight back, right? Yeah, I mean, this is... Uh, it's, you know, not a surprise that people feel this way. They think they're doing the right thing, I guess. Years of demonization by Republicans of anybody who opposes them politically, of all of their political opponents. I mean, it's it's going to have an effect. It is having an effect. It has hit his it has hit its mark. You know, the Republicans po politicians are expressing their outrage about this, but they didn't say anything about Trump's rhetoric about the media being enemies of the people or about, as no. you've noted, these other people when Greg Abbott said that Beto O'Rourke was hostile to Texas. So, you know, it seems like they only care that they've been that they look bad uh, now after after all this demonization after all these years. I don't think they actually care about whether or not about the welfare of uh, of President Obama or uh, former Secretary of State. No, Hillary they don't Clinton. care. They don't care about any of this. I mean, this has been going on and every time it happens and every time uh, someone uh, you know, there's a threat or someone gets shot. And yes, we have had uh, uh, that guy uh, at the uh, Republican softball uh, 
uh, practice. Who shot at uh, represent, um, Steve Scalise, yes. Steve Scalise. Uh, yeah, Democrats have done that. I don't know if he was doing it because he was a Democrat or not. Um, you know, th- yes, this happens. And every time it happens, they say, yeah, we need to calm down. We need to calm down the rhetoric. And then we get to where we where we find ourselves now, where everyone is trying to destroy the country. Alexander Soros, uh, George Soros's son, wrote an op-ed in The New York Times, said that his father has faced uh, these kind of threats and demonization for years, but it's usually been from extremists on the right. And then something changed in 2016. He cites Donald Trump's uh, final TV ad, which famously featured Soros and Janet Yellen, who was the chair of the Federal Reserve, and Lloyd Blankfein of, of Goldman Sachs, all of them Jewish amid dog whistle language about special interests and global special interests. He says a genie was let out of the bottle, which may take generations to put back in. Uh, He says we must find our way to a new political discourse that shuns the demonization of all political opponents. A first step would be to cast our ballots to reject those politicians cynically responsible for undermining the institutions of democracy, and we must do it now before it's too late. To that end, let's take a quick break here. Cleanse the palate and come back to the ongoing battle for peaceful democratic elections in the country since a really important one Uh, is just two weeks away now uh, to begin putting the brakes on this kind of madness. Uh, Early voting is underway across the country. Some of us are holding our breaths to see if uh, people will be able to vote at all on November 6th. Trouble on that score. Trouble in Memphis today. A very so-called blue bastion in a very so-called red state where a very tight U.S. Senate race is now playing out to replace retiring Republican U.S. Senator Bob Corker. That story is straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. When I was walking in Memphis I was walking with my feet ten feet off a beer Walking in Memphis Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Over the summer and into September, polling had suggested that former Democratic Tennessee Governor Phil Bredesen was leading Republican Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn by as many as 10 points in the contest to fill the U.S. Senate seat being vacated this year by Republican Bob Corker. 
In the following uh, in the weeks following the volunteer state's Senate primary over the summer, Blackburn began consolidating support and closed the gap with the still popular former Democratic governor taking a lead over Bredesen in a number of the polls in the state. Last week, according to a pair of new polls, however, from Vanderbilt University and Reuters Ipsos, Bredesen and Blackburn appear to be in a dead heat in their high-stakes Senate battle, one that would be crucial to Democratic hopes of taking over the Senate and Republican efforts to hang on to or to build on their current slim majority in the upper chamber of Congress. The new, tighter numbers, according to TPM's Cameron Joseph, conflict with some other recent public polling showing Blackburn opening up a lead, but are reportedly more in line with private polling from both sides. The Vanderbilt poll finds Bredesen leading Blackburn by just one point, 44 to 43 percent. That's, of course, well within the margin of error. Reuters finds Blackburn leading Bredesen by three points, which is also within the margin. As of today, according to the Real Clear Politics average of recent polling, Blackburn leads the Democrat Bredesen by six and a half points in a race that they characterize as leans GOP as of now. But while strategists on both sides say they'd uh, rather be Blackburn at this point than Bredesen, the, the uh, recent tightening numbers are more in line with the consensus view of those involved that this is still very much a competitive race. According to uh, Joseph, he reports that his sources tell him that Republicans believe Blackburn has a slightly outside the margin of error lead, while Democrats think the race is a complete jump ball. These polls, in any event, suggest that Bredesen still has at least a chance, albeit one that would take a major surge at the end here. But of course, that's also why every single vote may end up mattering in Tennessee this year and why it's so maddening to hear about reports of voter suppression, not wholly unlike the ones that we've been covering in great detail in the neighboring state of Georgia, just to the south for so many weeks now. And also like Georgia, by the way, much of Tennessee forces voters to vote on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems at the polls. But problems in Tennessee's most populous and majority-minority county of Shelby suggest that some voters may not be able to vote at all, verifiably or not. The Tennessee Black Voter Project, a coalition of some 25 community labor and nonprofit voting rights groups, are now reviewing voter registration applications in Memphis, Tennessee, where they believe the Shelby County Election Commission is violating state and federal law. They are also demanding changes be made before Election Day on November 6. The group is inspecting a portion of thousands of voter registration forms deemed incomplete by county election officials after uh, they had filed an open records request last week seeking a court order to check the forms that have been disqualified by the county officials. After legal threats, the organization negotiated with the commission and started looking this week at, quote, some but not all of the registration forms considered incomplete by the commission. Tennessee Black uh, Voter Project contends that many people who filled out registration forms could miss out on voting 
because of errors made by the election office in handling what the Shelby County Election uh, Commission has characterized as thousands of applications with missing information. Federal law requires county election officials to notify applicants about whether their registrations have been completed. County officials claim that they're doing that. Tennessee law allows voters to fix any problems with their applications up to or on Election Day. But one lifelong Shelby County resident, 50-year-old Stephen Penn, for example, told the Daily Memphian, quote, I haven't heard any updates on my voter registration form, whether I've been accepted or rejected, noting that he registered two months ago. He said, I feel like I should have been contacted by now. I'm trying to vote because my health care is on the line and I'm trying to have a voice to fix the issues that aren't getting solved. For their part, Robert Myers, the chair of the Shelby County Election Commission, said the panel was working to contact as many voters with incomplete registrations as possible. And he complained that the Tennessee Black Voter Project, quote, dumped 10,000 of those applications on us on the deadline, basically. He said uh, he told the HuffPost last week they had control of those documents before they turned them in. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at those documents and determine whether they're sufficient or insufficient, he said. The project disputes Meyer's characterization of what the commission is describing as a staggering number of registrations that have been turned in this year. A spokesperson for the group told HuffPost that the uh, project did not submit 10,000 applications on the last day, as claimed by the commission. 36,000 applications were sent on a weekly basis for a span of around three months, they said, with an understandable uptick in the last couple of weeks, but not 10,000 on the last day. Additionally, the group submitted all forms as required by Tennessee law. The spokesperson said, indeed, all collected voter registration forms, whether they're correctly completed or otherwise, must be turned in by law to election officials. A Shelby County Election Commission attorney claims that most of the issues in dispute involve duplicate registrations, uh, meaning uh, the Election Commission received a registration for a voter who's already registered, Additionally, she said there were a large number of registrations from persons who were ineligible to vote due to a felony conviction. Other documents reviewed included registrations that are missing pertinent and required information. Shelby County Administrator of Elections Linda Phillips pointed out Tennessee requires voters to provide their gender. Forms without that information are considered incomplete. Phillips initially predicted the election office would be able to process all of those applications before early voting started last week on October 17. But she later said the commission would not be able to finish entering about 24,000 voter registration applications into the system. An attorney for the coalition said last week that before there was a threat of litigation, the county board was not even planning on processing all of those forms before November. But threatened with a lawsuit, the county hired more people and began moving much more quickly through the forms, he said. But the group, as they now help review the rejected forms, is calling for additional steps to help ensure that all eligible voters will be able to vote 
at the very least, by Election Day. Joining us now to help us understand what is and isn't going on in Tennessee is Corey Strong. He's the chairman of the Shelby County Democratic Party in the state's largest and most populous county, which is the home of the great city of Memphis. Corey also serves as a commander in the Navy Reserves and as a Broad Foundation resident for the Shelby County School District. Corey Strong, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you had a mouthful there. So yes. I was trying to make sure I'm taking notes to keep up. Yeah. I, I've been here, but yeah. Yeah, well, Great. I want to make sure I got everything right. Anything jump out at you is uh, terribly wrong in my characterization of, of what I'm trying to figure out as far as what's going on there. No, um, I think the thing that may be of interest to your viewers is, um, you know, the election commission's had a tough year. Um, I was elected to chairmanship of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, and it was a priority of ours because we have a history of our election commission in Shelby County not necessarily taking it upon themselves to really uphold the values of um, fair and just elections. Mm-hmm. And um, there have been several lawsuits filed uh, specifically against the election commission um, for different uh, municipal races, school board races, state federal races. Um, it's 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 happened a lot over the past 20 years. And so um, this year we actually had an issue during our um, early voting for our, so we have three elections during this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a local um, uh, primaries for our local county government officials. Um, so our county commission, county mayor, county sheriff, mm-hmm. you know, tax assessor, clerk. Um, so after the um, local primary, we had the state and federal um, primary and then the local general election, which was July early vote into an August election day. Mm-hmm. And during that election, they came out um, l- l- just a few weeks before early vote starting with a early vote plan that really disenfranchised minority voters and, and city residents mm-hmm. by having one early vote location open for the first four days in a place in the county that's geographically um, relatively centered. Um, and on, you know, on first view, may not seem um, to be that issue, but it's concentrated in a predominantly white area, in an affluent area, in an area that's not very easy to get to with uh, public transportation, and that a lot of people don't normally transit on, on to and fro work. And so, we filed a lawsuit, uh, got an injunction, um, and so we addressed that issue. But unfortunately, now we're seeing another whole other set of issues. And one thing that's really important is a lot of this appears to be just really gross mismanagement. Um, just There's a lot of attention in the election this year, mm-hmm. and they should have anticipated, hey, more people are going to register, more people are going to vote. It's a natural crescendo um, from our local primary to our you know federal and state general election in November, and there's going to be more people voting at each stop, more people registering to vote at each stop, and a crescendo of people kind of recognizing and, and paying attention to kind of the political conversation. And so the idea that they weren't prepared for it or idea that issues that did not occur in May and did not occur in August are now occurring as far as their equipment, as far as how candidates are listed on the ballot, as far as their processes and procedures for taking in and processing registrations. Um, it's, I mean, it's just rife with issues. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, like, did you forget how to do elections in the last two months? I mean, you have to ask that question, and at some point, if all of the issues end up affecting one side, and this is Democratic, urban, um, poor, minority voters, 
um, then you got to start asking questions, and somebody's got to be held accountable. And that's what I'm, uh, you actually yourself uh, had a mouthful there, hit a lot of points I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Shelby County, of course, is a very diverse county. It's a, sure. a, a slight African-American majority, and it's a very Correct. Democratic voting record. It went heavily for Hillary Clinton in 2016 by, I think, almost sure. 30 points in a sure. state that otherwise went to Trump by more than 25 points. So do you consider Correct. what's going on at the... Uh, Shelby County Commission here to be attempted voter suppression, or is it just one of those administrative nightmares that can be expected before a big election like the one on November 6th? Any uh, uh, opinion on, on that? So what I would say my opinion on it is, is this. Um, because of the city you're in, um, because of a very clear belief amongst the, the residents of the city that there is that the election commission itself and that elections are not trustworthy, and because you have a habit, right, and Administrator Phillips has just been on the job for maybe about a year and a half now, maybe two years, mm-hmm. um, but you know there's a reputation, and you know every time you make a mistake, it hurts a certain group of people, and a group of people have been historically disenfranchised. It is your responsibility, if you want elections to be fair and just, to ensure that mistakes don't always affect one side. And now we're having more mistakes that are affecting other people. And at every step of the way, she just kind of has an excuse or kind of doesn't really take it seriously. And at that point, it does it is disenfranchisement. So it's intentional or not, when you see how it's impacting our voters and you're not, you don't have, you know, kind of that, that internal duty and that internal kind of compass that tells you, hey, I, I really need to correct this mm-hmm. because institutionally we've had issues. That's what it amounts to. Um, and so, yes, we're going to want to be asking the questions. And, and yes, I do think at this point it's reaching disenfranchisement. And that's why, you know, she was speaking in front of County Commission today to give some solutions to those problems. The, uh, of course, Shelby, uh, with that very Democratic-leaning population, nearly one million voters, they would certainly be key to who wins or loses this year's uh, highly contested U.S. Senate race uh, in the state. No? I mean, there's... Absolutely. Uh, um, yeah. No, I would say, I would say um, Shelby County is the largest uh, Democratic base and we're the largest Democratic Party in the state. Um, but in actuality, in a very red state because of population, mm-hmm. uh, it is also the largest Republican Party and the largest Republican mm. kind of group in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people understand Nashville kind of goes into three different counties, and so it's metro areas split up. Mm-hmm. Where Memphis is wholly inside of Shelby County, and then there's the suburbs that are all fully contained. So we have the largest both Democratic and Republican. And if you go back to 2006, it was actually turnout that prevented our congressman at the time, Harold Ford Jr., from beating um, Bob Corker, mm-hmm. who a lot of your your uh, listeners will be familiar with. Yeah. Um, that was within one percentage point, and had the turnout been appropriate, it had been the same that would be in a presidential year, Harold Ford Jr. would be the senator from Tennessee as opposed to Bob Corker. And so Shelby County is very pivotal yeah. for statewide elections just because of the volume of voters we have. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, that's why I'm, I wanted to focus in on this, because I know that, you know, this e- even if this affects just a few thousand voters, this could end up uh, flipping that Senate race one way or another, and that could end up flipping the U.S. Senate one way or another. Corey Strong, um, we, we have seen reports from all over the country that early voting uh, turnout has been way up in a number of states, uh, but that much of the enthusiasm to vote early was coming from both Republicans as well as Democrats. And moreover, that huge turnout 
has also resulted in really long wait times in the states, uh, which is very troubling to me. Uh, If it's this bad for early voting, are election officials prepared for what could happen on Election Day when the turnout is going to be much higher? So uh, what have you seen uh, at the early voting sites in Memphis and across Shelby County. And by the way, since you had that fight over the summer before the primaries about opening up all the early voting sites, uh, have they done that uh, this time before the general election? Yes. So the court not only ruled in our favor to uh, ensure that all early voting sites were open the entire period as opposed to, you know, the first weekend, the first four or five days having a few sites open. And so actually early voting started here last um, Wednesday, and all sites were open all days, which so that's great for us. Um, right now, we are uh, blowing 2014 midterm election numbers out of the water. Um, we're approaching 2016 presidential numbers here mm-hmm. um, for midterm years, so that's huge. Um, in in addition to the issues you talked about with registration, it is actually some another issue we're having with the election commission here is some of their. Uh, equipment that checks voters in mm-hmm. so that, you know you get your card and there's the only system that is actually connected to the internet that figures out who you are and make sure that, that your information goes onto the voting card right they've had malfunctions at those mm-hmm. at a number of locations um and that is artificially causing a lot of lines here there have been one or two locations that you'll see some long lines at um mm-hmm. i think there's an ebb and flow in it um but i think overall because uh, there's a good spread of early voting locations the design actually has been set up here in Shelby County to be able to receive it properly. And so most of the time when we've had lines, it's because of equipment functions and not because of uh, the lines. But there have been, you know, some, some spikes and some peaks at several locations. And so you do see evidence of an uptick in voting. But it, 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 for the most part, without some type of, you know, malfunctioning equipment, um, it's not enough to deter people from going to vote. And another good thing is people are very active on social media, people are very active, um, on radios and, and, and other communication forms to yeah. let people know locations that, you know, are easier to vote at. And so I see that pretty frequently. Hey, you know, somebody will send out a text message or an email. Uh, this location has, you know, is this pretty open to make sure that if someone says, hey, I'm ready to go vote, that they can go to a place, particularly when we're giving people rides to the polls, mm-hmm. that we take them to polling locations that can see them pretty easily um, and without much of a delay. So, um yeah. I, I have been very worried <clears throat> about the electronic poll book systems that I know Tennessee uses and a bunch of other states now use because, you know, it's one thing if they go down in, during early voting. If they go down on Election Day, uh, voters simply can't vote. Uh, and so that is uh, a very perilous situation to me, uh, unless, of course, they have paper uh, poll book backups. Do you know, do they have paper backups uh, or will they have paper uh, poll book backups in Tennessee on Election Day? And by the way, uh, in a related uh, thought, have you noticed any noteworthy differences in the problems that have cropped up at early voting sites? Uh, if they've been in more in the uh, urban areas versus the suburban areas, uh, et cetera. So just the, the fact, though, there's going to be more in the urban areas, more of our population is in the urban area, more of the population is in predominantly Democratic areas. And mm-hmm. so just the fact that that's where they're going to be. There have been a few instances in our very suburban and almost rural areas in Shelby County, like one or two locations have had issues. We've had four or five in our urban areas. And so, of course, it's going to get weighted towards us, which is, again, something administrators should be aware of, right? Like, I know where most of my polling locations are. I know who the people that are disenfranchised, so I need to make sure it's good there. Um 
what I would say is we don't do, um, that I'm aware of, we don't do the uh, paper backups. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the issues that started out with our early voting locations that they changed is they only had, I think, uh, one or one poll book and one backup at all of these early voting locations. Mm-hmm. And so what they've done to, to, to deal with that is bump up the number of poll books they have at these locations. They do have sufficient equipment to have multiple electronic poll books at locations. I believe on election day in August, I went to every location I went to had at least three edits, two or three edits. And so basically they're running two or three and you, if you lose one, obviously, as opposed to having them as a backup, they're running all the machines that they have on election day, right? But and so by doing that, yeah. more often than not, it stops. I think we had maybe two locations where two of the poll books went down and we had some lines. Um, but they have a, you know, a team that's going out and addressing them. But you're right. I mean, it's, it's an issue, and that's why we're actually looking at um, another uh, – we're, we're in the process of our county commission buying new machines just to update the technology, but also have a technology that's not you know, so, so tenuous and so you know, kind of fickle. Yeah, but I I I am very concerned. Of course, if uh, if the power goes out, it doesn't matter how many machines you have. If those if none of those machines can uh, get power on election day, I don't know if they access the internet. But we've seen you know throughout the uh, primary process this year where the internet was not available and that uh, crippled some polling places. Yeah, and yep. I'll tell you, Corey, I sat in on a uh, Davidson County, Tennessee election commission hearing some years ago. That's Nashville. Uh, and, and Democrats had the majority on the commission at the time. I, I believe Republicans now control the state election commissions. But even back then, with oh, De- yeah. we, I know they, with uh, with Democrats back then the, in charge, the Republicans still sort of ran the roost. And one of the commissioners even told me at the time, Brad, paper ballots are the greatest fraud ever perpetrated on America. Uh, and I know the state uh, had called uh, had, had was supposed to move to paper ballots. But then in 2008, when they were the only state in the union, Tennessee, to go from blue to red rather than the other way around, uh, the Republican legislators killed that effort. So you guys are now stuck with those 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems. Do those have paper ballots? Uh, are you confident there will be sufficient paper ballot backups uh, at the polls on election day if those systems go down or if just the crowds are so long that it would otherwise turn people away? So I'm not confident in that, um, and that is an issue that we brought up. So, again, we in Shelby County, so all of our counties have different contracts for the machines that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, just an interesting point to your backstory. Um, we did just have four vendors come in and uh, present new machines to us, and one of the companies did not have one of the technologies that everybody was demonstrating, which is it creates a paper ballot that is a file that can be used in case stuff goes down or in case of a recount. Mm-hmm. And the one company says, hey, just like you were saying earlier, that people think this is the worst thing ever, so we actually stopped making it <laughs> because nobody wanted it. And now, in the last five years, there's been a return to that because people are afraid of electronic machines, and so now they want paper backups, right? So it's just interesting kind of the ebb and flow of technology and mm-hmm. what the vendors are selling based off of people's perceptions of what's good and what's bad. But what I would say is um, we don't use paper backups here. So if it's not electronic, it's not happening. Um, the only papers that we use are the provisional ballots. So if you are not found in the machine, you can you, you know, you can do the provisional ballot and come in and vote later. Um, yeah, that's a concern of mine. And I, you know, I, I, I really hope that, um, you know, crossing our fingers, knock on wood, that the success we've had the last 
several election days is sustained. But yeah, could that cause a problem? Could I see us staying up late at night to get some people registered to vote? Um, and uh, the election for Senate coming down, you know, to Shelby County or Davidson County or Knox County, I certainly could see that. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're just going to try to do our best I can to su- the best we can to keep voters educated, motivated, and supported at the polls. And when there are situations where lines kind of back up, we will show up to those polls and you know provide both support to those individuals and ensure that whatever they need and whatever required to make sure they cast their ballot is, is, is done. I hope uh, moving forward, I know that uh, the uh, state Democratic chair out there, Mary Mancini, is a great uh, champion for uh, election integrity. Uh, I've uh, known and worked with her for years on that, and I hope that as you guys move forward to, quote-unquote, new technology, that it includes hand-marked paper ballots, not computer-printed, computer-marked paper ballots, but hand-marked paper ballots because they're the only ones that are verifiable after an election. Last question before I let you go, Mr. Strong. Uh, you heard some of those uh, poll numbers at the top. Uh, what? W- how close is this race between uh, Bredesen and Blackburn for the U.S. Senate? And do Democrats, uh, are, are you confident they still have a shot at pulling this off? Oh, I'm very confident. Um, you know, there was a, you know, in the month of September, early October, there was a, a nationalization of a lot of these elections. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're seeing, um, maybe not to the same degree as you do in Florida or Texas, but you're, you're starting to see some younger people show up to the polls, uh, more activity in those younger age groups that don't work, vote in large amounts. But if you look at the bands of people um, that normally go to the polls at 45 and above, all of them have very fond memories of Phil Bredesen. Um, he's a principled leader. He's very successful in Nashville. He's very successful as governor. Yeah, sure, when you do that for eight years, you're going to have some issues. But, you know, when you have a congressman that's connected to opioids, when you have hospitals closing and you have people saying, hey, uh, I'm going to provide sensible leadership that's good for Tennesseans, that message resonates. And I can tell you there are a lot of Republicans um, that that I know who are still at this point undecided um, because Marshall Blackburn hasn't convinced them of that. And so I think you're going to come down to Election Day and see um, a surprise in Tennessee because of, um, his his history um, and his record here in Tennessee, serving Tennesseans and making life better for them. Uh, and so I'm, I'm still confident we're still campaigning here locally. We're trying to make sure the Democratic turnout, but across the state you'll see um, we'll throw Bredesen shows up, he brings the crowd, um, and, and that name still means something here. Um, and hopefully uh, we'll be looking up as our next senator. Corey Strong, chairman of the Shelby County, Tennessee Democratic Party. Yep, I bet we are going to have surprises in Tennessee one way or another. Let's hope they're encouraging (laughs) ones uh, that I'm not calling you on election night saying what the hell is going on in Shelby. Corey Strong, I really appreciate you joining us today and uh, hope you'll stay in touch. Uh, Good luck over the next couple of weeks. Hey, I appreciate it and thanks for what you do. You bet. Thank you. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with... um, I know I said at the top of the show that was it for the good news, uh, mentioning Georgia. Yeah. But uh, maybe some other good news here, too, <laughs> coming up. Because I can't, uh, day like today. We need all the good news we can get. Yes, we do. Well said, Desi Doyen. Quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Desi Doyen, I know I may be uh, stepping on your, uh, I, I don't know if this is going to lead your news or not, your Green News report on tomorrow's uh, show or not. Because there's a lot to lead your Green News report tomorrow. <laughs> we got another hurricane or two. Yeah, uh, we got a lot doing uh, on. Yes. Yeah, all kinds of things. Uh, but this one, I suspect, is going to make its way in at least a little bit. And this seems to be good news in an otherwise grim day. New York's attorney general filed a lawsuit against ExxonMobil on Wednesday that claims the company defrauded shareholders by downplaying the expected risk of climate change to its business. Yay. The litigation follows uh, more, uh, more than uh, three years of investigation. We know that there have been uh, a bunch of New York attorney generals who have been looking at this, have been investigating this. We've been sort of waiting for them to come out with their findings. And now they're out, I guess. Uh, three year investigation. Uh, the litigation, the New York Times notes, poses a financial risk to Exxon as well as a potential rep- reputational blow to a company that has worked to build an image of being concerned about climate change. Now, I don't know if um, this came out before. I think it was while the markets were still open. The markets plunged today more than 600 points. So it's uh, I didn't look to see if Exxon had taken a bigger hit than that. But I suspect, um, you know, everyone's uh, stock prices fell by uh, big numbers today. So I suspect Exxon's did as well as to their reputational um, excellence of their image being concerned about climate change. That's what they've been trying to put out there. And thanks, New York Times, for uh, repeating that falsehood. Yeah, they've been spending millions of dollars over decades to sow fear, uncertainty and doubt about climate science to make it seem like it's not real. And it is and it is dangerous. And uh, the New York Attorney General Barbara Underwood is uh, suing them for defrauding investors yep. for lying to them about the risks of climate change regulations on Exxon's business. The suit does not charge that Exxon played a role in creating climate change. I don't think it argues they didn't, uh, but that's yeah, not what this it suit is about. Yeah. Uh, it, it argues that the burning of fossil fuels is a major contributor to human-driven global warming, but that the company, in this case, engaged in a, quote, long-standing fraudulent scheme to deceive investors, analysts, and underwriters, quote, concerning the company's management of the risks posed to its business by climate change regulation. In other words, they knew about it. They knew it was going to affect their business, their company, their shareholders. 
and uh, they uh, ran a long fraud scheme in order to keep that away from the public. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, Exxon uh, told the world that it was prepared for more stringent regulations that would inevitably be required to combat climate change. The AG's office said, but in reality, according to the complaint, the company, quote, employed internal practices that were inconsistent with its representations, were undisclosed to investors and exposed the company to greater risk from climate change regulation than investors were led to believe. Most of Exxon's valuation is based on their reserves, the reserves that they claim to hold. So if they are not going to be able to extract and sell those reserves ever because of climate change regulations or a carbon tax, then their valuation is incorrect. That's a huge issue with stranded assets that uh, economists about climate change have been trying to cover and trying to alert investors to uh, because there are a lot of fossil fuel assets out there, not just Exxon's, that will uh, become potentially worthless within the next couple of decades. And of course, Exxon has known this for decades. We have covered it for for years here. Their uh, uh, scientific literature going back decades. They knew about climate change that was due to burning their product, using their product. And they hid that from the public at some point um, in the uh, 1990s uh, to the mid 2000s. They put a whole bunch of money into uh, these groups that denied climate change. And then they stopped funding those groups, supposedly, that directly challenged the science of climate change in the mid-2000s. And now they're claiming, oh, we accept the science of climate change. They wanted uh, Donald Trump to stay in the Paris Agreement. But they're saying one thing, and they're actually doing another, and now they may be held accountable for it. So there is some good news for now. Today, we will take what we can get in these dark times. Uh, And thank you for joining us uh, throughout these dark times. Uh, My thanks as well to my producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Corey Strong of the Shelby County, Tennessee Democratic Party, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, though we do thank those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. For some reason, ExxonMobil just does not want to sponsor this program. (laughs) So we rely on you. Uh, Please consider, if you haven't done it in a while or you've never done it before, it'll take you about 60 seconds. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate. We really could use your support, and we thank you for it. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.